Hello, I'm Shane Hartsfield, pastor of Beaver Baptist Church. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Christ or questions about our church, direct you to our website, beaverbaptist.com, for our contact information. Weekly, we study exegetically through books of the Bible. And now, join us as we dive into today's passage. The scripture reading this morning will be out of Matthew chapter 7. We're going to read verses 6 through 12. That'll be on page 965 of the Black Pew Bible. If you would read along with us. Matthew chapter 7, we'll look at verse 6 through 12. Pelagius was a British monk who moved to Rome in the year 401 AD. And he preached there for eight or nine years, and he was a very popular preacher. He uh, was the originator of the doctrine of Pelagianism, which he believed that men weren't affected by original sin. In other words, we're all born just like Adam and Eve was in the garden. And each of us have within ourselves the power to do the will of God. So if God lays down upon us some obligation to do a certain thing, then we must have the power within ourselves to do it. And this teaching appealed to those in Rome during that time period. And he, paid, he preached with great fervor and, and popularity and he would say, well, if God calls to do something, surely we have the power to do it. A little understanding the fact that often God tells us to do certain things which are impossible for us in order that within ourselves we may discover that we don't have the power to do them. And then consequently what happens? We rely on Him, right? So Pelagianism results in one depending on oneself. It glorifies man. Biblical Christianity teaches we must depend on God and glorifies him. So Jesus is teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. We've been, we're at the back end of this uh, in chapter 7. He's teaching us what it looks like to be a Christian. In chapter 5, the attitudes that ought to be if we're a believer, if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, if we've been redeemed, if we've been set free, if we've been rescued, if we've been forgiven, if we're a follower of Jesus, we, there are certain attitudes that we should have and we should be growing in. He taught us how to understand the law. You've heard it said, but I say to you. He tells us how to live our lives. In chapter 6, we're told not to give and pray and fast, so to get noticed, we, we, we struggle with that, don't we? We want to do things because we want to get to the attaboys, don't we? He tells us not to store up treasure here on earth, but store up treasure in heaven. And then we get, begin to think about, well, what about our physical needs on earth. And so Jesus answers that question with don't be anxious about things that you need. God knows what provisions you have, what needs you have, and he will provide them. So don't be anxious. He also says don't be overly critical of others. How many of you besides myself have trouble with that? Don't be overly critical. Being hypocritical and giving someone else a standard bow that's higher than the one you set for yourself. Don't do that. But you should correct one another with gentleness and love. But Jesus goes on in recent weeks, the text we've studied, we need to be discerning about who we correct and rebuke. We don't correct and rebuke everybody. We stay away from the the dogs and the hogs, right? Stay away from those who are obstinate, who don't want to listen. And so there's a lot of correcting going on the Sermon on the Mount. I've been humbled. It's been so good for my soul. 
But as I look at the, read through this text, thinking about all we've learned, man, the standard is so high. Man, how can I do these things? I fall short, I fall short, I fall short. Any of you had that same thoughts? Man, I just fall short. It's so hard to do. How do I do these things? How do I, even, even the last text in verse 6 that, that Morgan read for, read for us, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Like, well, how do I know who the dogs and hogs are? That's difficult too, isn't it? How can we do all the things that God wants us to do? How do we please Him? Well, it's difficult to do. How can we live up to His standard? We get to our text today and it tells us how we live up to His standard. Again, we're not looking at being perfect, meriting our salvation. This isn't we're saved through works. No, this is for those of us who are believers who've been poor in spirit who recognize that we are needy and we've cried out to the Lord for grace and mercy and forgiveness. And now we're following him. But how do we obey? How do we do all that God wants us to do? How can we please this holy God? Verse 7, we ask, we seek, and we knock. Jesus asks, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be open to you. Who's Jesus speaking to here? Is he talking to everybody? No, he's, he's not talking to everybody, is he? I mean, keep in context of verse 6. He just says, don't give to dogs and hogs, right? That's people that aren't, they're obstinate, people that don't follow me, that don't know me. You don't have to correct those people. They're not going to listen. So who's he referring to here? Who's he speaking to? Yeah, to believers, right? To, to us, the church. James Montgomery Boyce, he, he says it rightly. He says when this verse could, could be read this way, ask you who are born again and it will be given to you, you who are born again. Seek, those of you that are born again, you seek and you who are born again will find. Knock, for those of you that are born again, you knock and the door will be open to those who are born again. It's for believers, those who are part of the church. Who can approach the Father with such boldness of asking and, and seeking and knocking? But only we who have our guilt and our shame and our embarrassment dealt with. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? Before we become a believer, we don't want to be, we're not very vulnerable. We're kind of guarded, you know? We're kind of guarded, aren't we? We're we don't want to lay our souls bare. We don't want to show our cards, so to speak. But when God does his work through the Holy Spirit and, and exposes us and breaks our hearts, we're just we're vulnerable, right, to the Lord and to, to others. Those of us who've been vulnerable and who've repented and trusted Christ, that's who the, the Lord Jesus speaks to. He says that we should ask and seek and knock. And what do we ask for? We don't ask for stuff, do we? Not ease or material things. We ask for help in order to do what he's been asking us to do. So when he says, ask, seek, and not, ask, seek, and not for what? For all that he's taught us already in chapters 5 through 7. How do we do all that? How do we measure up? How do we apply these principles in our life? By asking the Lord for help. I mean, think about it all the way back to chapter 5. Can we be pure in heart, singly devoted to the Lord, can he, obeying him, be our, our ultimate purpose 
day in and day out. For that to be the case, we need his help, don't we? Can we be peacemakers? Can we be peacemakers? I, sometimes we like drama, don't we? Even as redeemed people. We need his help in order to be peacemakers. What about persevering amidst persecution? Can we do that on our own? What about rejoicing in the midst of persecution? That's a difficult one, isn't it? Yeah, we need, in order to do that, we need the Lord to help us. Can we be salt and light? Can we influence other people in our sphere of influence, the people we work with, people we go to school with, people we live with? Only if he helps us do that. Does our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees, the most religious people of Jesus' day? Can, but God's got to help us. Can we not only resist murdering, but can we control our anger? That's a good one, isn't it? The Lord's got to help us do that, huh? What about our adulterous hearts, our wandering eye, lusting for what is forbidden? Can we obey? Can we do that? Can we be pure? We can, but the Lord's got to help us. What about keeping our word and resisting, retaliating when others treat us terribly? Someone treats us badly. Can we, can we resist not saying anything bad about that person to someone else? You can, but the Lord's got to help you. Got to help me. Can we love our enemies? Only if God helps us. Can we resist doing things for the wrong motives? Can we resist doing things so we don't get the pat on the back and the attaboys and other people to think highly of us? We can, but we need the Lord's help. Can we fight off temptation to be anxious? We can, but he's got to help us do it. Can we not be critical of others? Can we discern who we should correct? Can we differentiate between the hogs and dogs and, and those who, whose hearts are like fertile soil and all they need to do is hear the gospel and they'll repent and believe? We can, but we need the Lord's help. Get my drift? So we draw near to the Lord asking and seeking and knocking and we do this not just once, but we do it continually because we continually need his help. We're desperate knowing that if he doesn't help us by pouring out his grace, we can't be helped. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get her done. We don't get too far that way. Pelagius was wrong. He was condemned as a heretic by the church in 431 A.D. We don't have it in us to get her done in regard to our salvation or in regard to our sanctification. You can't come to faith and, and, and know the Lord on your own. You can't grow in the Lord and be sanctified and be more like him on your own. It just does not happen. We need his grace and grace and more and more grace. What do we ask for? We ask for help. In a parallel passage, James chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, it's interesting when you read the scriptures, different authors inspired by the same God, they say a lot of the same things. They just say it a little bit differently. Here James is in chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Sounds like us sometimes, huh? Sounds like her. Yeah, it does. 
You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So what do we ask for? We're asking and seeking and knocking. We're drawing near the Lord, petitioning him to help us and give us and give us and give us. But we're not asking for things for stuff. We're not even asking for things to make it easy for us. What are we doing? We're asking for help to obey him. All the things that he's taught us in chapters 5, 6, and 7, we're asking him for help so we can obey, so we can honor him with our lives. See, God's not a souped-up Santa Claus that we, we go to him for our needs. Give me this, give me this, give me this, give me this, give me this. No, the Lord is my shepherd, David said in Psalm 23, I shall not want. What's that mean? It doesn't mean that he gives me everything I desire. We know that's not true. Because even the things we desire, they're not good for us. And a good daddy don't give his son stuff that he don't need. All right, Taylor? He gives, us, he gives us what we need. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So we go to the Lord and he helps us. How do we approach God? How do we approach this heavenly father who's, who's holy and righteous and just, but who's also merciful and gracious and benevolent and loving? How do we approach him? Well, the second thing we see in our text, verse 9 through 11, he's a loving father who gen gives generously to his kids. We ask those in authority over us for things, but we pattern our request on the nature and the temperament of those authorities. In other words, if our fathers, if they're grouchy, moody, how do we approach them? Very carefully. We ask very gingerly, right? Yeah, we, call, we, we approach them with caution and we, we phrase our request in a way that's really, really winsome. We try to word it just right. But if our father is good-natured and in a good mood and, and very benevolent, very understanding, how do we approach them? Openly, with great confidence, don't we? It's the same spiritually. If a man prays, he'll pray in harmony with his view of the God to whom he's praying. How are you approaching God these days? If the gods are moody, as the Greeks believed, then you're going to come warily, right, on your guard. If the God is vengeful, then you're very, you come very fearfully and trembly. But if God is gracious, as Jesus Christ declared the true God to be, then us who believe can come boldly. And we, we don't have to fear to ask for good gifts of the one who is our father. Look at verse 9 through 11 here. I'm sinful and self-absorbed. I'm a daddy. I have four kids. I have flesh that ties me to, to the carnal. But, you know, my kids aren't needy. In fact, they probably would tell you, I'm going to do without before my kids do. And I'm a pretty terrible person. Well, my son, he asked to play, play ball in the yard even though I'm lazy and self-consumed and I got a whole lot of other things I need to get done. be honest with you, about nine times, maybe eight times out of ten, I go out and play ball in the yard. And I'm a sinful, self-absorbed piece of trash of a man. If a sinful daddy, and you're a daddy, you would do the same thing. I'm looking around seeing all these daddies. You took care of your kids because you love your kids. You're good to them. If somebody was going to do without, it wasn't going to be your kids. They weren't going to be hungry. You'd go hungry first. And you're sinful, and I'm sinful. 
How much more are our benevolent Heavenly Father going to take care of his kids? And Jesus uses two absurd examples here to drive home his point. If a person asks his father for bread, would he give him a stone? If he asks his father for a fish, would he give him a snake that would harm him? No. Even if you're sinful, unwise, self-absorbed, you're going to be good to your kids. How much more will your father in heaven be good to, to you and to us? So the question is, how you been approaching God lately? You've been approaching him like he's benevolent, loving daddy that's going to give you everything you need? Or are you approaching him reluctantly, warily? Maybe you're not understanding who God is. Maybe you're not, your perception of him is wrong. You're not having a biblical understanding of who God is. Third thing we see in our text, verse 12. By depending on him, asking, seeking, knocking, our Heavenly Father, as he's benevolent and, and loving and gracious, by depending on this benevolent Father, we'll be able to love our neighbor, thus fulfilling the law. Look at verse 12. So, and in the ESV it says so, in the New American Standard it says therefore, but they mean the same thing, there are ground there. So or therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The, the so there or the therefore, What's it referring to here? That's the, the big question. And you might say, well, it's, ask, it's referring to the, the text right before it, the ask and seek and knocking. So we ask, seek, and knock. We draw near and we ask this benevolent daddy, heavenly father we have, and he's going to help us, give us what we need in order to obey him. But maybe it, it, it refers to the whole sermon. See, back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, there, it's like... There's a bookend here. Chapter 5, verse 17. Look, look back with me real quick. Flick back. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Remember, we, we, we studied that text a while back. Jesus' teaching doesn't set the law and the prophets aside, but rather they fulfill what they demanded. And then here in chapter 7, verse 12, we see this, the, same, the same idea. In verse 12, so whatever you do, it's whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also them, for this is the law and the prophets. Or you could also, this sums up the law and the prophets. So here, again, it affirms that the spirit of the instruction of the law and the prophets is fulfilled when we do to others as we would want done to us. So when we're, we're treating people and doing to them as we would want them to do to us, what are we doing? We're fulfilling the law. You know, it's like the Ten Commandments. The first four, it deals with our relationship with God. And the last six deal with our relationship with, with others. So the last six of the Ten Commandments are fulfilled when we treat others like we want to be treated. And, and Jesus, when asked by a Pharisee, he was being tested, which law was the most important. Jesus responded, Matthew 22, 37 through 40. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Yeah. Love God with all, everything you have. That's what's most important. And second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the golden rule, right? Verse 12. Treat people like you want to be treated. Do to others as you would have them do to you. 
Obeying the golden rule is loving your neighbor as yourself. The same command. And notice it doesn't say what you don't want others to do to you. Avoid that behavior towards others. In other words, it doesn't say if you don't want to be robbed or cheated, then don't rob or cheat others. And you could be the neighbor or, or who no one knows or no one sees. And someone asks you about your neighbor. What about this neighbor over here? Oh, I never see him. But I'm sure he's a pretty good guy. We, we, just, never, we just never see him. They just kind of keep themselves and they don't bother anybody. Well, that's not really what this is referring to. So you can be a, a recluse and do no harm to anyone, but you can still do no good to them either. Sometimes we think, well, the best neighbor is the neighbor I don't ever have to talk to, see, or hear from. Or, or better yet, hear their dogs from, hear from their dogs, right? Or their chickens or their whatever, right? Cat or... But you can, be a, you can not do harm to someone. That's not the same as doing good to someone, is it? But this command is actually in the positive. How do you want others to treat you? Then treat others the same. You want others to be thoughtful and giving and encouraging. Of course you do. I'm not very, I don't need a whole lot of encouragement. And you're like, well, good. I ain't going to give it to you then. But I'm just, I just, the kind of my personality is, right? I just, I got a job to do. I'll do the job. If you encourage me, that's going to be better. But if you don't, it'll be all right too. But most of folks aren't really like that. But you know what? Even though I don't really need a whole lot of encouragement, it helps every now and again. You want to be encouraged, then encourage. You want someone to be gracious, then be gracious. You want someone to be long-suffering, then be long-suffering. We're really, uh, really good at taking care of number one, aren't we? That's our default mode, is to guard and protect and take care of our own. But here, the command is to look out for others. And how do we do that? By asking and seeking and knocking. We can obey this rule and grow in it, right? So Jesus is commanding those who, who are already citizens of the kingdom to seek to order our personal lives by this standard, which in its essence far surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees. You think the Pharisees were treating people like they want to be treated? No, they weren't. The command of Jesus demands a standard of conduct that surpasses what is normally expected. People just don't live this way. Only Christians. And that can only be obeyed and fulfilled and done if you're asking and seeking and knocking, asking for the grace for today. Lord, give me grace today. Help me obey you today. Help me not get angry today. Help me not say that. Help me bite my tongue today. Help me not, help me have self-control today. Help me, it's just, a, it's a, Lord, give me grace for today. Give me grace for today. By way of application, are you depending, are we depending on the Lord? Are we petitioning him regularly to, to give us grace to obey? Let me, let me tell you, we don't never, we never graduate from the spiritual disciplines. Got a master's degree in theology, done ministry for a long time. I never grow out of just getting my tail up in the morning and drawing near to the Lord. Sometimes it's at home. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night like my neighbor. Pocket dialed me at 1.30 last night. Love her. She's sweet. She didn't mean to, but I couldn't go back to sleep. Just the Lord want me to pray, I suppose. 
But I never, I never graduate from just drawing near to the Lord, studying the scriptures, drawing near to the Lord in prayer, and asking him to help me. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. That's our prayer. That's, that's our default. should be our default prayer. Josh, just, Lord, help me. Help me treat my wife rightly. Help me treat my kids rightly. Help me respond rightly. Help me work as unto you. Help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. That's what he wants us to do, and God is a benevolent God. Are we depending on the Lord, petitioning him regularly, continuously to give us grace to obey? Another question, is your view of God accurate? Is it biblical? Do you see him as a benevolent father who wants to give you what you need, or do you see him as a begrudging, grumpy father who likes to see you squirm and struggle? If you're viewing God that way, you're, you're not understanding the Bible rightly. Are we treating everyone like we want to be treated? Maybe there's someone in particular, as I talked through this, that came to your mind. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a br little brother or a bigger sister. Maybe it's a, a spouse. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a mama or a daddy that you hadn't talked to in a long time because you got some, something going on, some riff. If you've been ugly and, and, and terrible to somebody, would you want somebody to be terrible and rude and distant from you, or do you want somebody to be loving and gracious and forgiving? Hard to do. It's hard to do. It's hard to treat people like Jesus would. That's why we have to ask and seek and not draw near the Lord, asking for help. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to get ready and take the Lord's Supper. And it's great, isn't it, when you preacher brings up something about your past or some relationship that's not right and somebody you've sinned against and here you are, you're a Christian washed in the blood of the Lamb clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and you done treated somebody like trash and now the Lord is on your on your uh, on your case about it this morning. Well, we're going to take the Lord's Supper and we need to make things right with the Lord and we need to commit to making things right with people if if there's something that needs to be taken care of so let's sing one more song as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning Try. 
team, I appreciate you. That's great music today, preparation for taking the supper. We've got, we're about to take the Lord's Supper. This is real important. Uh, one of the most important things we do at church, if you're a, a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've been made a public profession of faith and, and you trust the Lord, you say, He's my Savior. He, the, the work He did on the cross, He did for me then we want to encourage you to take the Lord's Supper. And some of you say, well, you know, I ain't taken the Lord's Supper in a long time or I'm not really living right or whatever and, and maybe I'm just not worthy. Right now is not a good time for me. But listen to me. If you're a believer, take the Supper. If you're not a believer, please don't. We take it in an unworthy manner. Bad things happen. Happen to the Corinthians. Don't think it won't happen to you today. It's an important time. It's a time, it's a family meal. My whole life, my granddaddy, 19 uh, grandkids, and we would 
it was kind of a family church. We'd come to church here at Beaver, and then after church, we'd go to my grandparents' house, and, and all the, the, the aunts and my mom, they would bring sides and stuff, and my grandmother, you know, a big spread there, and we would come and we'd eat. The Hartsfields lunch, many of you have participated in that. And we have this family gathering, and now even um, more times than not, my family, my mom and dad, will get together and we'll have a family meal. And that's what this is. It's a family meal, those who are part of the family of God. Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he had his face set like flint. He was going to obey the Father. He was going to give up his life for sinners. And he had this last Passover meal with his disciples, and there he instituted this last supper. The Jews would no longer need to celebrate Passover in the same way, but they would celebrate this meal together, remembering, commemorating Jesus' death. So why do we take the Lord's Supper? First of all, to remember what Christ has done in a moment we're going to take this bread and it's it's got a, a little the first little section there you got your bread and then your second section of juice we'll do the we'll eat the bread first together and then we'll eat the juice we'll all do it together um, but we also take the Lord's Supper just as a time of accountability we have to examine ourselves it's a time that we, we take it once a month. There's no set time, right or wrong. We just do it once a month. We feel like that's a pretty good rhythm for our church, and it makes us have to sit and think about our lives. And are we obeying the Lord? Are we walking hard after Him? Are we pleasing Him? And if we're not, it, it God calls us to repent and to make things right. And, you know, it's not about being perfect because none of us are, but it's, it's about growing and following the Lord, becoming more like Him. And I feel like this taking this supper helps us become more like Christ as we remember our sin, think about it, think about his death, think about what he's done for us. That motivates us to live for him. So let's take the supper together. Again, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we don't believe here that this actually becomes the body of Jesus. We're actually eating the flesh of Christ. But what we do want to do is remember his body broken for us. What I mean by us means those of us who are redeemed by his death. So let's be thankful and we'll take the the, the bread together, remembering his body broken. Father, we acknowledge that you are a good, gracious, benevolent Father, and you give to us now our daily provision. You give to us so many things, so many graces. But our the ultimate gift you gave was your Son. He walked this earth in perfect, complete submission to you. And that record, that perfect record, has become ours. Not because we're good or because we deserve it, but because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We're thankful for his body.
We're thankful for his incarnation. We're thankful for his death. What a blessing Christ is to us, your church. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take the bread together. Remembering Christ's body broken for us. Now we'll take the, the cup. It has this juice. Parents, you might need to help your children with that. Paul continues, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray and give, give thanks for this, this precious blood. That's what this cup represents. Represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ's precious blood. We know your word tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And we're sure thankful that we can be washed and cleansed. Our sins can be atoned for because of Christ. Thank you for his work 2,000 years ago on that cross. Thank you for the many testimonies in this room of folks who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's drink it together. grace to you today and this week. May we leave her today rejoicing because of what Christ has done for us and because of the singing of truth, the teaching of truth. May we leave here and be a people who continually ask and seek and not. Let's go be the church this week. For those of you that are in small group tonight, we'll be praying for you. May you have a sweet time of teaching, of fellowship, breaking bread together. The rest of you, Wednesday night, if you'd like to come, we'll have a we'll have Bible study. We'll have um, children, some uh, older children will be meeting, students will be meeting, adults will be meeting, and soon we'll have uh, everybody meeting. Just be patient with us, but we'll do that on Wednesday and uh, be back again next Sunday. If we can do anything for you, we would love to know that. Feel free to see me or call the office and see any of these small group leaders. Anyone else have anything that we need to remind anybody of? Okay. All right. Well, grace to you. You're dismissed. Thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if this message has been helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, go to our website for our contact information, and we'll see you next time.